good day everyone and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast broadcast from 3CR your only radio left Susanna here with you and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues your favorites for a start so welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. Last week, listener, I mentioned self-serve checkouts in supermarkets and how it struck me as just another way of getting rid of staff to make more profits for the company at the expense of the shopper. And just this week, I was reading from a website which I follow called Tech Republic. And it was written by someone who was very excited about the coming advances in robotics and in automation. Well, you may be excited by it or you may dread it, but there's no denying that the effects of artificial intelligence, AI, will be felt across many industries and not everyone will experience the disruption equally. According to this report, automation will impact people differently depending on their current job, their education level, and of course some people will be impacted differently than others will be. Well, I mean, we know this. This is what happens when automation comes in. This report listed the jobs that have the highest risk of automation, along with their percentage of risk. Cashiers, 97%. Office clerks, 96%. Secretaries and assistants, 96%. Food preparation, 92%. Retail salesperson, 92%. Now, those professions employ millions of people. So if that report is correct, robots could have a serious impact on the economy. How many jobs will be lost there? And what about the total salaries which will be lost? I'm not against robots or automation or AI, definitely not against AI, but everything seems to be coming so very fast. Is there any security in any job anymore? You can't replace a primary school teacher with the robot or with robotic teaching aids. Although some of the programs I've seen on iPads are pretty good and I wish I'd had them for my children when they were young. You can't replace construction workers with robots. You can't replace nurses with robots. And there will be jobs, of course, in all the engineering, the maintenance of all these artificial intelligence machines. So if you're looking to change your vocation in the future or your family, your friends, that is, well, there are some jobs really not worthwhile taking up. Teach your children to code. That's the answer. This may seem a bit of a jump away from the self-serve checkouts, but it's been on my mind. We see more and more of it wherever we go today. It's a new world. Oh, 
I lay down your railroads every mile of track With the muscles on my arm and the sweat upon my back And now the trains are rolling, they roll to every shore You tell me that my job is through, there ain't no work no more Though I lay down your highways all across the land With the ringing of the steel and the power of my hand And now the roads are there like ribbons in the sky You tell me that my job is through, but still I wonder why For the wages were low and the hours were long And the labor was all I could bear Now you've got new machines for to take my place And you tell me it's not my vision share So I lay down your factories and lay down your fields With my feet on the ground and my back to your wheels And now the smoke is rising, the steel is all aglow I'm walking down a jobless road and where am I to go? For the wages were low and the hours were long And the labor was all I could bear Now you've got new machines for to take my place And you tell me it's not mine to share Though I lay down your factories and lay down your fields With my feet on the ground and my back to your wheel And now the smoke is rising, the steel is all aglow I'm walking down a jobless road and where am I to go? Tell me where am I to go? Well, that song you just heard was from Phil Oaks, and it is a real blast from the past, I can tell you. It's a very sad story about Phil Oaks. It really is. He was an American songwriter and protest singer, as they were called in those days. He was known for his very sharp wit and, of course, his activism. He wrote hundreds of songs in the 1960s and 1970s and released eight albums. He described himself as a left social democrat and then he became, as he said, an early revolutionary after he witnessed the protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, which ended up in a police riot that actually had a profound effect on his state of mind. His mental stability declined. He eventually succumbed to a number of problems, including bipolar disorder and alcoholism. And he died by suicide in 1976 after the brutal torture and death of his friend Victor Hara from Chile. He was only 36 years old. A very sad story. I won't forget the concert I caught of his in 1972. Vale, Phil Oaks, I still remember you. Uh, good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. Thank you for that reminder, Bagman. We are indeed listening to 3CR, and we'll be hearing from you just a little later on. June has just gone, and June is Pride Month. And good on all those people who are proud for the human beings that they are. And I think of Alan Turing. You know Alan Turing? Think of the Apple logo. 
Alan Turing ended his own life on the 7th of June, 1954. He laced an apple with cyanide and ate a bite from it. He did this because the British government humiliated him for being gay, prosecuted him for being gay, and chemically castrated him for being gay. And Ellen is the reason why a chunk is bitten out of the Apple logo, in honour of Alan Turing. OK, what did he do? He invented computer science, really. And using his first designs, he decrypted the Enigma code, the machine-based encryption that the Nazis and the German military used to communicate secret commands to each other in World War Two. Well, that saved millions of lives, but it also brought us into the modern age of computing. Pride Month wasn't just about dancing on floats in gold hot pants or flying a rainbow flag. It was about remembering, and we should always remember, that everyone has a right to be happy, and everyone has a right to love who they want to love. And we should always recognise the outstanding contribution that everyone can make in a society free of fear and free from prejudice. Just remember Ellen. And remember Ellen next time you look at the Apple logo. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And it's time to hear from the BL from the bush with a special treat for you today. Stay tuned for that. Yeah, morning comrade, morning listener. This is the uh, BL from the bush uh, calling in. Opens are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Well, she's a bit shoulders bold up here, uh, comrade. Colder than the hearts in the coalition's party room, discussing the plight of the reciprocants of receiving social security entitlements. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's bloody cold. Last week, I was talking about Tasmania and uh, some other states trying to push through legislation for harsher penalties for demonstrating and protesting. Listen to this week, a bit of a surprise for you. I'm just going to give someone else a bit of a crack at telling you what they think demonstration and, and protesting is all about. Comrade Natasha, the working class poet. Morning, comrade. Welcome and thanks for finding the time for a chat on Left After Breakfast. Natasha, do you think that, that the role of the police will be greater with this new legislation if it gets up and running on the uh, anti-protest laws? Historically, the role of the police in situations like this where people are taking to the streets or people are defending their communities and acting together, the role of the police is to protect private property. You know, we live under capitalism here. That's all we can talk about from our personal experience. But my personal experience of being involved in taking to the streets over many issues, all the demonstrations that have been held in the city and out here, is the police are there to defend private property and the interests of profit. As police powers increase, that's designed to decrease the power of the people. 
Yeah, and also I just sort of like to go into that is that I think that, and um, I'm sure you were there, or I know you were there, and quite a few others, which was probably the biggest demonstration I'd ever been involved in, and quite proudly involved in, was when the attack was on on the workers' health and safety on the jobs and what have you. I think there was you know ten, fifteen thousand, if not more took to the streets. That was when union movements got together and talked amongst each other and had a real good demo. And that did, it didn't have a 100% uh, outcome, but it had some sort of outcome in trying to change some of the laws that were already put in there by the uh, Liberal state government at the time. And also there was demonstrations on injured workers. Yeah, that was during the Kennett era. That was the largest demonstration I'd been in at the time, until then, and there were 100,000 people in the city in Melbourne against privatisation, which the Kennett government were introducing, and all these other anti-worker and anti-union laws, and we've seen the result. We see the result now. That being the case, I think, it, again, it's a, it's a message about that they fear the numbers. What do we have? We don't have all the resources of the state to draw on. We have each other. And we have the numbers, and that's the principle of unionism as well as the principle of people power. That's what we have. We have solidarity with each other, and we have the numbers, and that's what they're scared of. It does seem that way, because when you're looking at the different states, you're looking at Victoria, so you seem to think, well, what's happening here? Well, we've mentioned the logging. What other thing is paramount in the minds of these politicians that they've got to try and get this legislation rushed through? Uh, Tasmania is... is, uh, quite evident what's happening down there is it's to do with the rainforests and, and keeping the place pristine as it is. Obviously, the Liberal government, developers are hand in pocket there with them. They want to start slashing and burn and making it into something like the Gold Coast or whatever of Queensland down there. So let's let's ramp up the laws. Anyone, to pr- any, any sort of protest against capitalism or these developers will be met with the force of the law. And in Queensland, as well, sort of said earlier, or lately, was that they've had those draconian laws on the books up there for years. I mean, as I said, mentioned earlier about that CQEB dispute up there, there was even, they even legislated up there that if you, if you wore a T-shirt or any sort of apparel that was supporting those locked-out workers, you also could have got sloughed up or just pulled off the street and please explain by, by the goose-steppers up there. So, yeah, it's a pretty shocking situation that we find ourselves in now today that we're... Once upon a time, it was everyone got out to protest, and I'm just, you know, it, it was about anything. It could have been closure, closures of local shopping strips for these big multinational bloody supermarkets and that to come in. That protest now can be met with, oh, you're obstruction and whatever, and you end up getting slayed. This is the dangerous part of all this stuff. Where does it end? And the police will be at the forefront of this. Again, I look at it from the point of view of the community. And from that point of view, that's what our strength is. The strength is that people support each other. As long as we operate in that way, then taking to the streets is something that we always reserve the right to. We, we assume our freedom from the start. They want to take our freedom away, then we fight for them. We, we assume those freedoms, and I think that's that's been tried and true. If you look what happened during lockdown, when um, in the US people were taking to the streets during lockdown over the disgrace of 
which has now been proven of the murder of, of George Floyd by the police. And here in Australia, people who've been dealing with the tragedy of black deaths in custody also took to the streets in Melbourne, like they took to the streets around Australia, but they took to the streets in Melbourne under very, very difficult conditions, being the most vulnerable to catching the coronavirus. But they handled it really well and they were able to show to people what Aboriginal people have been dealing with and their courage, the courage to do that and to continue to do that. What did they do? They took to the streets once again. This year is the 50th anniversary of the tent embassy in Canberra, which galvanised Aboriginal people around a whole range of really, really important fundamental issues of rights that, of which they'd been dispossessed of, i.e. the land. And now we have a, basically a cultural revolution happening from in those 50 years, that transformation. There's still, of course, that fundamental issue of the rights that people have, of course, and their conditions of living, of course. But we can say that tradition amongst Indigenous people and those who've supported those rights over many, many years have made a difference. Yeah, and that was, and that definitely you talk about protests, that was one of the original ones, putting them tents up there outside the... Um, still um, there. It's still there, that's right, yeah. Probably trying to say here, listener, is that, yeah, is that these laws, they, they'll tell you that they're just there to to stop the, the radical protesters or whatever, but as we said before, you and I both know that that's... Uh, that's just a smokescreen for um, more unlimited power. Would you like to share with us your thoughts or your earliest involvement in your, you protesting and demonstrating? Sort of lead us up to where you sort of are today. Yeah, I was brought up in a political family, so I was pretty political at an early age. My first experience of being in a, a massive demonstration was the days of the sit-ins in Swanson Street in Melbourne that uh, the likes of Jim Cairns and others were leading to get us out of the Vietnam War. And good to say that with his election, (laughs) the government that he was in, um, we did get out of the Vietnam War, we did stop conscription, and a whole lot of other things happened as a result of that too. So, I mean, that leaves quite a big mark on you. Um, most of my adult life, it's also been the mark of the peace movement. So I was involved in a lot of different kinds of demonstrations taking to the streets over the years in the peace movement, anti-apartheid demonstrations. I'm sure people have memories of lots of those. Support of the Palestinians uh, against both wars in Iraq and famously in 2004, I think, the 14th of February. 10 million people around the world demonstrated, took to the streets to stop them going for another war in Iraq and we've seen the consequences of the powers that be ignoring that. Uh, we're still dealing with it. The people in Iraq, obviously, are still dealing with it, as uh, many in the Middle East. And a lot of other issues over the years, you know, I'm sure the listeners will be able to think of many, many that they were involved in just from the peace movement. So that's on a bigger scale. May Day 
having gone along to May Day marches as mm. a, even as a child and taking my own children being involved actively in May Day. That, that gives us that think global, act local kind of consciousness because we take the whole world into account. Today, here we are, one of the major issues confronting us as human beings and people on the planet being climate change. And a lot of these issues about changing these laws and increasing the power of the state are about the inevitable consequences of worsening economic conditions and worsening environmental conditions and the clash between the old world and the world that needs to be built out of the old world. So I think some of these laws reflect the, that that clash is going to get more and more intense. I suppose the other thing I'd reflect on is obstruction clauses in the new laws in Victoria affecting the local community up here opposing logging. When my children were little and I lived in the inner suburb, then we had our protests related to the welfare of our local community and our children. For example, setting up the community health centre in Brunswick all those many years ago. The minister at the time, Tom Roper, Minister for Health, who was in the Labor government at the time, and was the local member, was more aligned with the AMA than the local community and opposed salaried doctors at that community health centre. Now, without going into all the details of why we needed them, I'm sure the listeners would be able to work that out. We had one protest after another after another and we won. And so there are still salaried doctors at the community health centre in Brunswick all these many, many years later. Another one was, you'd think it was a basic thing, where my children went to school. It was on a very, very busy road in East Coburg. And the parents got together and marched our toddlers and our prams up to the town hall to demand a school crossing supervisor. And we won. These are really small things, but again, I go back to the point that we act from the point of view of living in a community and we think about living in a community on a planet and we always maintain our right to go to the streets to protect each other and to protect the community that we live in. Yeah, look, that's great, Natasha. Thank, thanks for that. The history of what it means, it means to every one of us that uh, when, we, when we put boots on the street. Thanks again for your input. I just hope that's a little bit informative for you, listener. So it's the BL from the bush. I'll go out in the same old way. Uh, dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast, the only show left.
I know that I've said this before, but I was pleased to see the results of the census, the 2021 census, showing a significant decline in religiosity, with the proportion of people choosing no religion increasing from 29.6% in 2016 to 38.4% in 2021. The rise of 9 percentage points since 2016 is the largest ever single increase between censuses for people choosing no religion. This census result is also the first time that the number of Australians indicating a belief in Christianity is less than 50%. It's incredibly apt, really, that these figures come just after the US Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Now, there's an extreme example of how disproportionate the reach of the church can be. Let's look at a local example. What about the $1 billion spent on the school chaplaincy program since it was introduced by the Howard government in 2006? Religious workers were given vastly preferential treatment under this program. A growing number of people are identifying as humanists, a movement based on the philosophy of being good without God. They believe non-religious people are neither lacking nor lesser than religious folk in any sense. Put simply, society has changed. And the 2021 census results give us a clear idea of exactly how much it has changed, with almost 10 million people now reporting that they are not religious. And so many of these people are living good, highly contributory lives. It's time we acknowledge it's perfectly possible to be ethical, compassionate and to live a life of meaning without any supernatural beliefs. It's also clear that it's time to rethink and reconsider all of the many ways in which the Australian state privileges religious institutions. How could we forget the former Morrison government's proposed religious discrimination bill, which would have allowed the religious to exclude the secular in certain settings? The non-religious basic principle of fairness should prompt us to look again at how much public funding religious bodies enjoy. And I believe that those almost 10 million non-religious Australians have some reasonable questions about how religious organisations are automatically classed as charities and granted tax-exempt status for their activities. Similar tax exemptions are simply not granted to equivalent secular bodies unless they apply for tax-exempt status and fulfil certain criteria. The tax exemptions automatically granted to religious organisations other than for genuine charitable work means millions of dollars are lost to state revenue at a time when so many social services are in dire need of funding. Ultimately, giving preferential treatment to religious groups just ends up emphasising the differences in our society by offering different treatment to religious institutions in the form of tax exemptions and offering different and usually preferential opportunities for funding, we're likely to end up with greater inequalities. We must reduce the privileges granted to religious bodies as their influence declines 
or stop it altogether, cut it out now. And this will promote fairness and will offer truly equal opportunity for all to practice their beliefs or lack thereof. Religious institutions, with the collusion of government through tax breaks and unfair opportunities like the chaplaincy program, well, they're locked in a bygone age. An age of fire and brimstone, an age of incense, chalices and chasubles. It's time to acknowledge that society has moved on. And it's time for us to cross over to the bagman the oh-so-elusive Bagman. Well, good day, Bagman. Are you fit? I'm fitter this week than I was last week. Anyway, I've got to ask, Susan, are we a nation of hoaxes? Are we a nation of imposters, thieves, traitors, carpetbaggers, and their accomplices, of course, lobbyists, and the odd charlatan, because when you look at the way the last previous coalition government comprising of people like Matt Canavan, Barnaby Joyce, Bob Catter, every Liberal Prime Minister since Howard, George Christensen and Craig (laughs) Kelly. Now, all of those members of Parliament, all of those members of the coalition government that are no longer with us are people who denied climate change. They used to say, oh, weather changes every now and then. Well, tell that to the people on the coast of New South Wales and up in Queensland who are being flooded for something like the fifth time in as many months. And these people uh, used to say, that there is no such thing as climate change. Now, we've got to send out a a big thank you to people like Extinction Rebellion and all those people that have marched on the streets over the years to say we do have climate change and unless we do something about it very quickly, the world is not going to be a very good place to live. We see that now. We see that in New South Wales, Queensland and whatever, these people, the people I've just mentioned, ought to be pulled over the coals and, as far as I'm concerned, spend some time in the go-slow for the attitude that they've portrayed to the Australian people for the last 40 to 50 years. Or we could hit them where it really hurts. What, in the hip pocket? In the hip pocket, get them to pay up. Yes, we can hit them in the kick, as uh, as the BL from the bush would say. But then you have to take into account that this is a nation built on hoaxes. We're celebrating this week 10,000 deaths from COVID-19, 4,000 victims in Victoria. Now, this is a virus that some people said doesn't exist. The anti-vaxxers, the freedom fighters said COVID doesn't exist. Yet 10,000 people in Australia have died because of that deadly virus. And these people are still walking amongst us. These people 
are visiting old people's homes and, as far as I'm concerned, they're responsible. The anti-vaxxers, the freedom soldiers, the cut-lunch commandos for killing people in old people's homes as well as other people who are dying from this insidious disease. Well, maybe we could hit them where it hurts too. As we've said uh, on many occasions, there ought to be an island where they could be isolated instead of poisoning the rest of the population with their outdated and QAnon views. And we said last week, Susan, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. That's true enough. Well, we spoke last week about the hairy pill, a pill that you ring up a certain company and they'll send you a pill out and it will grow hair on a bowling ball. Now, I've got to be careful. There might be a cure for baldness, but as I know it, there isn't. The same reason there's a cure for old age. I mean, come on. (laughs) That's right. You'll know, Susan, that I'm a frequent traveller whenever I can. And it's been good news in the last week or so that when I've been into Qantas Lounge, because I always fly um, um, uh, the Australian carrier, Sky News was always on the big screen wherever you went within the airport. Sky News, if you ever want a poisoned, biased opinion, you can hear people like Vinegar Tits herself, Bromwood Bishop, Paul Murray and Rowan Dean test the limit of people's intelligence, the words that come out of their mouth. Once upon a time, Bagman, Sky News used to be on the stations in the <laughs> loop. When you go to the, to the city loop, you know, you'd get off the train at, say, Central Station, and there in front of you was a big <sighs> screen with Sky News. But fortunately, it took a while, though. Fortunately, the Victorian government removed it. Well, if you want to hear poisoned, biased opinion, jaundiced opinion from the Sky News people, you only... No, I'm not going to recommend... I'm not going to say turn over and listen to him because he's probably a bit more than you could possibly bear. I can't stand those people. Some of them are just, look, some of them make me just shake, literally. (laughs) No, literally shake with, with anger. I get so angry with them. And, of course, my doctor has told me I am not allowed to get as angry as that. I read the ABC online and the SBS News. Oh, right, because I'm of the opinion, Susan, that the internet is wicked. I know Scott Morrison said the internet was wicked also, but he said it for different reasons than me. Well, I use it to access world news. I don't read a newspaper. I must admit, Susan, I buy the Harvey Norman catalogue every day. Yes, I do. The Harvey Norman catalogue, which used to be the Age newspaper, I get that online every day because there's not many choices. There's the Age newspaper, which is a catalogue for Harvey Norman, or there is the Herald Sun, a sales catalogue for Rupert Murdoch. And sorry, Rupert, sorry about your personal problems. Uh, I hope you get over them, mate. You don't. 
I'm sitting here in my lounge room, Susan, with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, and I feel sorry for Jerry Hall, just as I feel sorry for uh, Nick Curios, but we'll go into him later. Curios. Curios. He's a tennis player. I know who he is. I know who he is, and I know what he did. (laughs) Well, we know what he does and what he did, and we make no mention of the current legal predicament that he finds himself in, because that's not our job to be a judge and jury. But no, no. And also, I have a friend who follows the tennis, so I have to be careful (laughs) what I say. I just want to... I won't go into it, but I'll say something about a curios fairly soon. But I wanted to go into a bit of history. Now, I know that it's Glenn Davis's job to go into history, but coming up on the 29th of August, and I'm not going to be here, I'm going to be sailing down the Nile River on a boat, so I won't be here on the anniversary of his death. I grew up with this boat, and I'm very proud to say that I knew him and I work with him very closely. But John Cummins entered the building and construction industry as a builder's labourer way back in 1972, and he immediately joined the BIF, an organisation that remained active and influential until it was amalgamated into what became the CFMEU. In the mid-'70s, come where we all knew... John Cummins as affectionately as Camo. Now, he worked as a labourer and a scaffolder in some important jobs in the city, Collins Place, and he worked on the Westgate Bridge. Camo's quiet determination and considerable persuasive skills on the job ensured Norm Gallagher and the BLF executive took him into the office for the first time the first stint as an organiser in Melbourne. Now, we all remember back to those days. The experience put him in good stead when the union sent him over to Western Australia to replace Jim Bacon in 1980. Do we remember some of the good things or all of the good things that came out of the Builders Labourers Federation? And Jim Bacon went on to become the Premier of Tasmania. Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. Anyway, following this tour of duty in the Pilbara and then Perth, he returned to Melbourne and took up organising in the increasingly rough and tumble of an industry under pressure. Now, it was under pressure from the Fraser Labor government. The pressure continued under the... Well, it continued because the Hawke Labor government deregistered the BLF which in turn led to the de-recognition of the BLF by the Kane State Labor Government. The Hawke Labor Government and the State Labor Government both tried to eliminate the BLF as it was. And good morning to all those BLF stalwarts that are still out there. And unfortunately, uh, one passed away last week with Sol. Yeah, they're dropping, mate. They're dropping. Oh, yes, they're dropping like flies. Faced with a second-year deregistration of a five-year deregistration of the BLF, Camo, in conjunction with BLF branches in Western Australia, Queensland and South Australia, 
move the bailiff forward to amalgamate with the new CFMEU. People should be remembered for their whole history, not for their last game, because Norm Gallagher opposed that amalgamation. And Kamei went on to be the president of the CFMEU. That's what Camo said to me. He said, never judge a man on his last game. Yes, that's right. And uh, we all remember Norm Gallagher for the good work that he'd done, bringing up the conditions, the wages of builders' labourers, because remember the old days when the first job you got on the building site was you are given a shovel and you were told to go into the corner and dig a hole because that was your toilet from that point on. That doesn't happen these days. But Camo was remembered, or should be remembered, for some very illustrious quotes in his time. And Camo come up with the, the call sign of this, this radio program, dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Camo come up with that, and he should have patented it because he would have made a fortune. I'm sure that there's a book somewhere called The Little Red Book of Camo Quotes. Well, there should be a collective works of Camoisms <laughs> yeah, um, in hardback sometime before the next revolution. Some of those quotes will remain with us forever. When bosses were sooking and whatever about how the industry was going, Camo said, the wailing wall is in Jerusalem. Yeah, it's right. That's <laughs> right. And some people that work on building sites and some of the bosses, um, and he, he mentioned about the maternal affection and he said he has a head only a mother would love. Uh, he's a lovely man, a lovely man. Uh, well, he was, he was. He was a hero and he will always remain a hero. And another quote, they're coming out of my ears, Susan. This is a quote you use quite often. He was unbiased as a Collingwood cheer squad. That's a quote you use. Well, I thought, thought I'd throw it in, and uh, it came from Camo originally. Hey, talk about the, the unluckiest bloke in the world. Yeah. You see that bloke? Yeah, that bike bloke who was shot in Akron, Ohio. He must have been unlucky. He was only shot 60 times. He jumped out of his car and ran away. The Akron police shot him 60 times. Can you imagine that? How many bullets are there in their guns? Six something. So there's <laughs> 10 of them. Well, there must have been a lot of them, Susan. And we shouldn't laugh about it because it really, it really is sad that a police force in America Besides them shooting each other and whatever and uh, all the killings that we have in shopping malls and whatever, how many times must have they shot at that poor bugger to hit him with 60 bullets? It's enough to curl your toes, Susan. That country is unbelievable. Even on their so-called Independence Day, you know, that their, their day of celebrating, they've got some whining white boys shooting people. That's right, um, and there's nothing that they can do about it because the uh, National Rifle Association really is the government of the country. But you've got to give 
some credence to people like Joe Biden that actually comes out and speaks out against this gun violence that happens every single day in America. It's like a science fiction film. Well, it is, and you wonder how many people will be left in the end. Now, I said we're going to speak about Nick Kyrgios, and we're not going to speak about his current legal problem. But, and I know that you know someone who thinks that uh, Nick uh, Kyrgios is a lovely bloke, but it's a delicious irony. The aggressive, bullying, spitting, abusive, Tennis Ompresonario claims he is now a victim. Congratulations on your admission to the sainted ranks of victimhood. Why is he a victim? Who's who's after him? Uh, They're all picking on him. Uh, They're all picking picking on him. him. Yeah, they're picking on him. Uh, Just so that they get a a soundbite that they can sell more newspapers. Anybody that spits at another person is not worthy of any consideration as far as I'm concerned. Look, I've got a, a young grandchild. He's an a Indigenous boy uh, from his mother's side, and he's not bad at football. Uh, he's 12 years old and he got best on the ground last week. And being an Indigenous person, he will probably be accepted into the ranks of an AFL side at some stage. But I want him to grow up. I want him to grow up to be rude, ignorant, insolent, spitting at people and whatever, because if you're a good footballer or a good tennis player, apparently you're accepted into the sporting community. Ah, I see. I wondered what you were Mm. getting at. Well, we do put sportsmen up on a pedestal. And, you know, there are a lot of AFL footballers who have been found guilty of assaulting their partners. There have been AFL footballers who have been charged with rape. But we tend to see the better side of footballers because they play for an AFL side. Gee whiz. No, it's true, and it's it's sad, but it is true. One person we could mention, and, you know, he's an old player with me, uh, Wayne Carey was assaulting his partner on many occasions, but now he's been forgiven. He's on the television. He's a football commentator, and he's held in high esteem. Not for Any, me, he's not. No, not for me either. Any person lays a hand on a woman or someone smaller from them has not got my blessing at all. Nor mine, bag man. No. Um, now, I'm not too sure of the time, Susan. Now we, I, I've got to admit that you, the music you played last week was a bit hard to understand. I don't understand Scottish. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> So if you could if you could play some a musical interlude that I could possibly understand there there is that famous recording done in the Harry Denner Hall. Oh, which one? Which famous recording? You mean you one of yours? That's right. You can't touch me. I'm part, part of, of the, the union. union. <laughs> if you can find that, Susan, it would warm the cockles of my heart. A cockle warmer. I'll find you one. 
I'm unsure of the time, Susan. But I can I can tell you what the time is. It's good. time for you to say it's that time. All right. Well, let's go out in the famous words of John Cummins. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from left after breakfast. Three C I can't get up to the top of my wardrobe at the moment to get a song down for Bagman. So instead I'll play him something else. Something that he can relate to. And this isn't actually a union song, though it became a union song. It became a song of, of protest, really, of just I've had it worldwide. It didn't start out like that, but it quickly became a catch cry for so many different groups and organisations and people.
Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you next week, same time, same place. Until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. Thank you.